0: Whew, with that, we don't need a sermon, right? Yeah. That was awesome. Thank you, worship team, and thank you to our AV team for all that they do. Uh, hopefully, you have a communion cup. Uh, we're gonna move communion to the after the sermon before we sing the last song. Which I told Austin, it's Reformation Sunday, we must sing a mighty fortress is our God. I don't care what you sing on Sunday, but that has to be. So that's where we're going to end today. And just a reminder with Charter Day that uh, some said, I I didn't see the form or I missed the form to sign up. There are some extras at this table. So during that half hour slot, if you want to grab those, uh, you can do that. Well, turn to your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. If you have just joined us, we're moving through this epistle, this letter written by Paul. Paul is in prison and he's pinning it to a group of believers located in Colossae, which you say, where is that? Well, it's modern Turkey, about 100 miles from Ephesus. Paul had never visited this church, but clearly his influence in that region has spilled over and we meet someone who had helped start that church, which his name is Epaphras, but we'll get to him in due time. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, we come to you, and indeed, hallelujah be your name. Thank you for the grace that you've lavished on us, that you would send your Son to die on a cross so that we could have a restored relationship with you, that we can be seen in a new community, the new man, as the text talks about, which we're going to study even deeper today. Thank you for your word, Lord, on a Reformation Sunday, not only is a reminder of the the gospel being put forth, but Lord, it was also the need, the reformer saw, of putting the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic into our own language. The idea that we can go into our houses and find a Bible is an amazing thing. Because even a couple hundred years ago, that was forbidden or wasn't allowed or, or wasn't translated. And so we are so grateful for those who've gone before us the William Tyndalls, the John Knox, the Philip Melanchthons, the Martin Luther's. Lord, thank you. Guide us now as we go to this text, these ancient words that are alive and changing hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is part two. And so if you missed last week, that's okay. You won't have to take the test at the end of the sermon. So that's all right. But uh, let me just kind of refresh a little bit of what we're looking at. Paul is using clothing as an example, as a metaphor for what he's trying to, to bring home or to to highlight to the church. Clothing's important in our society. I, I mentioned last week that 4% of the family's income is spent on clothing. I saw another stat this week. It said that the average American spends 17 minutes per day picking out what to wear. Now, I know we could debate that. (laughs) That's been skewed by a few, but okay. Uh, You realize that means four days out of a year, you spend picking out clothing, or it's almost six months of your lifespan. Spinning out, picking out clothing. It's important. And for Paul, he's saying, listen, spiritual clothing is important. And if you remember last week, we, we stated our apparel must be updated. Paul highlights in verses five, 5 through 11 the first he states that as a follower, if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have a new identity. It doesn't mean the old nature isn't still lurking and, and the, the attraction of the past. We talked about there's articles of clothing that were very comfortable in the old man prior to salvation. We liked how those feel, felt. We've got memories attached to those clothing. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You're you a new person in Christ. And so no longer is sin automatically the victor in our lives. And so we highlighted that. And so Paul lists the filthy five and the slimy six. Uh, He gives this laundry list of things we need to avoid. And today he's going to give us the sensational uh, six as well. We'll get to that in a minute. But our apparel must be updated. We also looked our apparel must align with our status. I asked the question, would Christ be caught dead in what you're wearing you know, uh, is it identified with Christ? And, and Paul states, how do we move forward? How do we uh, identify with this community in Christ? That's through the renewing of our knowledge. And we talked about that. And then finally, the point that we saw in verse 11 of chapter 3 is that our apparel must reflect the standard He gives that laundry list. Look back verse 11. He says, there's neither Greek nor Jew. In all of this, he says, Christ is all and in all. And so is the body of Christ. We're not going to focus on diversity. We're going to focus on unity around the cross. It's it's vital. Why? Because the new man is the church. We are seen collectively. And if you don't think that, these next verses are going to show that it's indeed where Paul's going with this as he looks at our apparel, and as the first note or point in your notes, is that our apparel must be worthy of our calling. Look what he says in verses twelve through fourteen. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and dearly loved, it's it's done. It's not conditional or partial. We have been selected through faith in Him. God wishes that none should perish. You've got this tension, don't you, in Scripture. I know several of you wrote to me this week as we were discussing this. There is a tension in Scripture. We all have to recognize Ephesians 1 says he's called us before the foundation of the world. At the same time, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord should be saved. And and what Paul's stating is you're now part of this new man if you've responded in faith to him. This is who you are. God loves you. I love that line, right? We're we're part, again, of this new identity. And so he says, clothe yourselves. And here he goes listing uh, sensational five plus ones. That's why it's sensational six uh, that he's going to lay out. And let's just look at these. And as we do, I want you to note a couple things. You may even want to jot this in your notes. First of all, what he's about to list can be said of Christ. There are a lot of passages we could look at. For instance, the first one here is Mercy. Our God is known as a God of mercy. And so the standard that we are setting here for this new identity is Christ himself. And we'll see all of these apply to Christ. The second thing I want you to see as we go through these, it's not about an individual. In other words, I wrote down, these are not words for the individual believer, but for believers as the people of God in relationship with one another. Watch as we go through this list. It's really how we're interacting with one another and wearing the new garb, right, as seen as the new man. And so let's go through this list and let's see what he lists. First of these, he says, is a heart of mercy. It literally means bowels of compassion. IBS is that irritable bowel syndrome. Well, what we're talking about is CBS, compassionate bowel syndrome, Right? That's what he's talking about. For, for the ancient world, it wasn't the heart, it was the bowels where you have compassion. And, 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 and so that's what he's stressing here. This, this isn't something we turn on or turn off, depending on who the person is or what they do or do not do to us, right? Christ had compassion on the, the, leader, the leaderless crowd in Mark chapter six, and we're called to have compassion to one another, mercy. And he says, not only mercy, but kindness. This is a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? Ephesians 4 states, be kind to one another, be generous. I love Psalm 34, 8. It's posted on every church cookbook. Taste and see. But the next line is, taste and see that the Lord is what? Kind. Kind. And and so as... Paul lays this out. He says, you're you're to be known as merciful. This is the garments that you're wearing, your new identity with him. And you also need to be known as kind. Again, it's a fruit of the Spirit. In other words, I would argue the old man cannot be kind. (laughs) You know, we know some gracious people who don't know the Lord, but it's the fruit of the Spirit that, that has to come through. And then that's what we see here. So kindness, mercy. Uh, third is humility, humbleness. It's thinking of others first, even better than oneself. This is one of the traits that's listed that would have been foreign to a ancient first century world. Humility was considered weak. And yet, even... Today, and if you read books such as Collins from Jim Collins from Good to Great and all these managerial books and, and looking, studying companies, humility is vital, isn't it? Well, of course, because Scripture teaches that. Paul has already used this word twice in this letter, but he's already mentioned in chapter 2. And, of course, we know that Jesus is gentle and lowly. So he says mercy, kindness, humbleness. The next one is gentleness. That term speaks of power under control. It's used of a soothing wind or a healing medicinal element or a a colt or a horse that's been broken. It's how we're to act with those who might cross us, right? It's the fruit of the Spirit, again, just like kindness was, that's mentioned. And so this is the kind of clothing you need to be seen with. And notice, he also then gives patience. Or you might have in your English translation, long-suffering. It speaks of being long-tempered. It endures that when you are wronged. It puts up with the exasperating conduct of others. (laughs) It's so easy to say, oh no, she's going through that door, I'm going out this door, right? Oh no, duck. Uh, this This is part of being long-suffering, being patient with others. And again, it's a fruit of the Spirit, and it's that which is known for the Lord. So Paul says, listen, those filthy five that we've looked at, the slimy six, those got to go. This is who we are in Christ, and this is how we need to be identified. And again, it's on a corporate level. He then gives us, in verse 13, two ways to accomplish this. Now, some scholars link it directly to patience. You could take it to all of these traits. But how do we fulfill these? By bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Another way to render it is by constantly bearing one another, by constantly forgiving one another. It's it's not self-centeredness right it's how we fulfill these things and look what he says he gives a little caveat if anyone has a complaint against someone else just and here's the the clincher just as the lord has forgiven you i think it's the most difficult line of the lord's prayer forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us I mean, think about the implications of that prayer I can say this, my, my, my grandmother, she's she a dear, dear lady, uh, Grandma Haunts. But poor Grandma Haunts, she, she could rattle off all the offenses <laughs> that had ever happened to her. It's like, Grandma, you just need to, to let the Lord deal with this. Because it's a little hard to go to the Lord and say, Lord, f- forgive me when you're harboring all these ills, keeping a tally sheet, and Paul says, as the body of believers, as the new man, as we come as one around the cross, he says, you can't have these grudges. In fact, God's standard is how you are to behave. And again, go back to verse 12. What are we to be? Holy and dearly loved. This is how we're identified. And so this is the call. Love, then, he moves to this love, and he says, and to all these virtues... Add love. It's it's the outer garment, so to speak. It's what adorns the other five uh, virtues that have been listed. Moffat, in his work on love in the New Testament, write, Love holds Christians together in fellowship under the strain of all common life. Love checks the selfish, hard tempers which keep people apart and thus militate against the maturing of good fellowship devoid of bitter words, and might I add, and social media postings, and angry feelings, and freed from the ugly defeats of immorality and dishonesty. He says, this is what should characterize us as love. It's interesting, he says, look at the text, he says, which is the perfect bond. I always thought that meant, well, that's what holds it all together. And, and, And thus, it's the primo virtue The problem is Paul never lists a primo virtue. He does say in 1 Corinthians 13, love, you know, we we know that text. However, nowhere does he regard love, I think Paul, if you look at his, his writings, as the uniting theme. There's another way to look at this, and I think it's correct, and that is love is the bond which leads to perfection. In other words, corporate life and unity can only be attained fully by loving one another. As we come, that's the motto for this church. Loving God and loving others. This is not a group of bitter bunnies. I've heard that. That's not what we're about. And I love that. Uh, Our focus is on Christ and what God is doing in and through us for His glory, right? And that's, that's our passion. That is our desire. And Paul says to the church at Colossae, you're a new man. There's neither Greek nor Jew. There, there's no barbarian or Scythian. He goes, we're in this together. We are unified, and, and, and this is how we should be characterized. Why? Because that's what God has done for us. Well, I don't know. I, I have my rights. I have these. Oh, careful. We stand before a holy God who has redeemed us, who has gone to great lengths, and our forgiveness. In our sins is contingent here, at least on this, not forgiveness for salvation, but forgiveness on and how we operate as believers based on how we operate here. It, the golden rule, the standard is set here in the text. And so, Paul states in these first few verses, our apparel must be worthy of our calling. He then moves into this latter part in these next three verses to state our apparel must have meaning. Notice what he says in verse 15. Let the peace, and I love this, of Christ be in control in your hearts. For you were in fact called as one body to this peace. The prayer for peace. If you want an interesting study this afternoon, go and look through Paul's writings. He often prays this for his readers. May you have the peace of Christ. The peace is the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? I mentioned here this, this fruit is not something we attain on our own. I mean, our world is in chaos. In fact, I was reading uh, yesterday a psychiatrist from Manhattan in New York who was stating that she has never seen the turmoil like she's seeing right now. Between COVID and the elections, she goes, I don't care what side of the political fence they're on. She goes, our world is in turmoil. It's worse than she said than 9-11 in New York. Our world is anxious, they're nervous. And so I ask you this morning, as a believer in Christ, if you know Jesus are you, is your savior, is there peace? Oh, you say that's hard. I know it's hard. Some of you are walking in deep valleys. But do you know the peace of God that comes? Or are you this morning, do you go to bed anxious? You wake up anxious? Your life is in chaos. There's no meaning. It's stressful. Then turn to Jesus. He is our peace. Correct? He is the one who, who longs to give us this. And, and let it control your hearts. It says this here, to control your heart. That term is used, it was an athletic term. It was, it was what was used of the judge who gives the prize. They're in charge to, to distribute the honor. And so peace it needs to be in our hearts. Again, why? Because we're part of the new man. And so peace comes not only internally, but also in how we deal with others. It spills over. We need to be known as a body of believers who are walking in peace, called to be one body and Christ is the head. And Christ, as we see, is the, the, the source of this peace in verse 15. He doesn't end there. He says, let the peace of Christ be in control. And then I love this next line, and be thankful. And so I wrote in your notes under letter B that gratitude needs to be seen in our wardrobe. We need to be known as thankful people. This is the third time Paul has mentioned it in the letter. He will mention it again at the end of this section and in fact, I believe it's around 30 times that Paul mentions gratitude, gratefulness, be thankful in his writings. Remember, where is Paul? He's not sitting on the French Riviera, right? He's in prison, he's suffering. And he knows they have been struggling. The false teachers have been attacking the church. So they know turmoil, they know struggle. And he says, Ah, you need to be thankful. You need to be grateful. It's interesting in Romans 1.21, when Paul talks about the unsaved. You know what the problem is? He says, although they knew God, listen to His words, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. Interesting, isn't it? Not only did they not honor Him, they didn't give Him gratitude F.F. Bruce in his commentary says, If thanksgiving is God's due from all humanity for his gifts of creation and providence, how much more is his due from those who have received the surpassing gift of his grace? Right? If all of the world is to give him thanks, should we all the more, as being members of a new community, give God gratitude and thanks? Thank you, Lord, right, for all you have done. And so Paul says, listen, when we look at our wardrobe and the new man, you, you, you see these traits all characterized by love. And then he says there needs to be peace and there needs to be gratitude. It's easy to get distracted. If I asked one of you to, to carry a plate full of marbles around this room, and you have, I don't know, two minutes to do it. You're going to move quickly, and it's going to be, you know, your eyes are all on these marbles, so you don't lose them. When you get done, I ask, well, did you see what, uh, I don't know, did you see what Frank Frank was wearing? Uh, Well, no, I I was focusing on the marbles. Did you see where April Murdoch was sitting? Well, no, I was looking at the marbles. If we focus on Christ and all that he's done We're not going to be too concerned what someone said or how they treated us or what has been transpired. Our focus is here. And that's what Paul is saying. Look to the peace. Look to gratitude to God for all that he's done because you are holy and dearly loved is how he started this section, right? And so as we look at our wardrobe, there should be peace. There should be gratitude. And also it should be scriptural. Look what he says in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. (laughs) We, We need to listen to the message. Bow to its authority and assimilate to the message. To dwell richly means that we need to take time to read, to study, to memorize. One of the things we're going to challenge you all, this next year, is so we're going to read through the Bible. Don't worry, we're going to have different plans. So you could read through the Psalms for the year, or you do the entire Bible. Uh, I know, when it gets to Numbers and Leviticus, though the cart seems to get tilted. But reading through the Bible, being in the Word. And Paul says, this is what we need to be characterized. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. It's important. It's what sustains us. It's what strengthens us. It's why we stand and celebrate Reformation today because there are those who have gone before us to ensure that we have the Word of God in our language. You know, Luther translated the Greek New Testament in 11 weeks into German For the, and, and his influence on the German language is still felt today because of translating the text. And so here we stand. He says, Let the Word of God dwell in you richly and now there are two prepositions. And watch this. This is key. How do you let the Word of God dwell richly? Here's the means. First of all, by teaching and exhorting. Turn back to chapter (laughs) 1. Look at this. 128. Paul says, we, that is his missionary entourage, his band of brothers. He said, we proclaim him by how? Instructing and teaching. But it's not just a role for the apostles or the frozen chosen. It's it's what we all need to be doing as a new man, a new community. That we need to be teaching and admonishing one another. And I love this, with all wisdom. True wisdom demonstrates itself in a practical way. If the teaching and admonition are given in a thoughtful and tactful manner is what we see here. And so... Let the word of God dwell richly. How do we do that? Number one, through teaching and through admonishing. The second way we see here is through singing in our hearts. Isn't this interesting? Notice what he states. With all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, all with grace in your hearts to God. There are many, uh, I've heard pastors and some Scholars who want to argue psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are three different entities and they, they, they spend a lot of ink trying to argue that's the case. The problem is, it's not that clear. And most scholars would argue there is great similarity between these three. They're, they're difficult to distinguish. Not saying there isn't a full range and a variety that's required, but i not sure that's fully the focus here so bear with me and notice he says we'll get to this in a minute the psalms hymns and spiritual songs but it's not saying there isn't variety but you know i've heard say some say well this is the psalms is the the from david the hymns mm, i think you're you're splitting hairs that are not there in the greek the terms are used interchangeably in the old testament as well and other Greek writings, but he says, and you do this with all grace. The focus is not so much on our attitude toward God, Phe writes, as we sing, but on our awareness of his attitude towards us that prompts such singing in the first place. I mean, look at this. You're the new man. You've been called to be holy, and he has loved us, and he has forgiven us, and that is what drives us It's understanding that grace which makes us want to break out in song and in our hearts. And so, how do we let the Word of God dwell richly? One is by teaching. The other is through singing. Now, I have some implications in your notes. By the way, someone has stated that what we need is God's book, the pocketbook, and the hymn book. All right? So this is the idea. And so let me give you some implications. I think that's being teased out of the text. And I I, don't, I hope this isn't Hoffaditz that's seeing this. Uh, in fact, I'm adapting some, some work that's been done by David Dittweiler on church music in Colossians 3. That was penned back in 2001. First, in your notes, church music has a horizontal and a vertical dimension If it's in the context of teaching and admonishing, which is a corporate idea as well as individual, so should the music. This isn't something you do in your back room. It's a collective expression to our Lord. We are members of a congregation. And so, when I am communicating to those around me, I mean, the question is, what am I communicating to those around me when we're singing collectively? Am I looking like I sucked on prune juice? Or am I part of this group that's collectively giving praise to God? Well, I can't sing very well. That's okay. You're not on the worship team, so don't worry. We don't have you mic'd, miked. All right. uh, how am I building others up in worship? If this is part of, of, of us wearing that garment of love, if we're coming together, then this, is, this isn't just for the Lord. It's also as we minister to one another around us in seeking This also means, by the way, that the lyrics must be addressed to God as well as, and get this, to the congregation. I hear people say, well, you know, that song only talks about my relationship to the Lord or how we're supposed to relate. Yes, that's okay. Look at the book of Psalms. Some of them are are, are more centered on my relationship with the Lord. Others are focused on our relationship to God. And so the church music has a horizontal and a vertical dimension. Let me give you another. And when I get done with this, I have some people probably going to withdraw their membership. But uh, this is kind of the philosophy we're going to be taking as we move forward because I think it's a biblical one. Secondly, music is an important tool in instructing others in the faith. You know that Martin Luther put music right up there with preaching. In fact, he wrote several hymns. One of them we're going to sing in a few minutes. Woohoo! But he states, though through the marriage of text and music, the impact of the word is intensified, and consequently it's through singing and worship that has brought the gospel forward. Luther stated that music was the best gift of God. Isn't that interesting? And so music is an important tool. Third, The lyrics of church music must accurately reflect biblical truth and are understandable. And that's key even when the instruments are playing. They cannot distract from the lyrics. Uh, Austin, when we were talking, he said, you know, I want to make sure that people can hear themselves sing, that the, the instruments are not overpowering. I said, thank you. That is a biblical response because I see that in the text here, right? This is how we are engaging one another. And so... The, 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 the lyrics need to be loud and clear. They also need to be attested. Listen, there are, are modern choruses that have problems with some of the lyrics. There's also some hymns that have had problems with lyrics. And, and so we as a body come and, and we want to be theologically astute in our lyrics, but also reflecting that which can be understood in, in volume. Another, church music must be characterized by active participation. Please note... What it says in verse 16, this is with one another in wisdom in in all your hearts, you're not exempt, whether you know if you can sing perfect pitch or not. Church music is designed for active worship. Worship, I love what Weber wrote, worship is a verb. It's not something done to us or for us, but by us. This is another reason why we must recognize there's need for a variety of styles. It's not just about hymns. It's also choruses. Why? Because we have some people in the church, they're not, they didn't grow up with hymns. That's not, the, that's not what they would prefer to sing. And others, it's only hymns. We come together as a body of Christ and part of this new community. And remember what the text says. Look what it says after this. And I love that he wrote this, all with grace all right? there's all with grace. You know, my parents, it would be Southern gospel music. Oh, sorry. And I know I got some Southern gospel fans in here. You know, for me, it's it's listen to Bach, you know? And 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 uh, we got Spotify at the house. My daughter and I fight over it because I'll say, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm listening to Vladimir Horowitz, and all of a sudden, it goes to some, I don't know, rock and roll thing or something. I don't know. Like, what are you listening to? What happened to my Vladimir? Uh, and so, We all come with a variety of perspectives, and and part of this is walking in grace. I know that. Also, church music should indicate, as I mentioned, the variety of songs, and that fits with what we just stated above. And and then finally, worship needs to be expressed with sincerity and devotion. Spaggenberg, another German reformer and von der Musiker, he writes, "'Music is, is called a divine gift.'" an art because it stimulates to godliness and causes one to grow and increase in the praise of God, godly loving and Christian devotion. Worship is probably one of the most controversial areas in the local church. I'm glad that Austin is overseeing it. But I will tell you, it's also one of the most powerful tools of the church. That's why Billy Graham had a George Beverly Shea. It's why D.L. Moody had an Iris Sankey. They understood the value of music to the church. And it is our commitment to, to, to remain as close to the biblical text and our understanding of the text. And I am so grateful for Austin and our worship team who has such a passion for wanting to exalt Christ. Why? Because we're, we're part of this community. And, and, and how are we to let the Word of God dwell richly? It's not just through teaching, but it's also through singing. Isaiah 29, 13 says, These people come near to me with this mouth or their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I had an elderly professor of church history. He used to say there are three litmus tests to determine if a church is on fire for God, if it's vibrant. He said the giving, the fellowship. He says, do they scurry out of the church when it's over or do they linger in, in, in fellowship? And third is the singing. How's the singing? And I think he's very much, I think he's correct. How, and it's so good to hear you sing. We're going to go on the road. If we can't find a facility, we'll just go on the road. <laughs> and so Paul says, not only peace, gratitude, and the, the, the Word of God, but he gives us one more thing in verse 17. And I, I call this the label The label needs to be not Armani, not Hugo Boss, not Ralph Lauren or Chanel, but it needs to be Jesus, right? And whatever you do in word or deed, and it comes on the hills of singing, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. A name's important, isn't it? Steve Davis shares this story. uh, He was on this bicycle marathon thing. Uh, Why you would do that, I don't know. But he was on this bicycle marathon thing, and he said he saw this lady drive by, or ride by, and she had Hoffeditz on her n- number. And he goes, hey, do you know David Hoffeditz?" And he goes, she turned around, and if looks could have killed, she would have killed. And she goes, that's my ex. And Steve goes, were you married before? I said, no. There are, <laughs> no. <laughs> there, there are about three David Hoffeditzes in the world, and you just happened to meet the ex of one of them. So... <laughs> A name is important, and and what is the name of our label? It's Jesus, right? Everyone who believes in the name receives the forgiveness of sins. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, what, shall be saved. The whole life of the Christian stands under the great banner of the name of Christ. And so, our mission is Christ-oriented, our goals are Christ-focused, and our passion is Christ-likeness, is it not? And so the clothing you're going to put on or take off needs to be in keeping with your Christian confession. Can I do it in the name of the Lord Jesus? Whose reputation is at stake? You are part of a new community. And there's some garments we talked about last week and you need to review that list. They can't be worn. Oh, it's so tempting at times, isn't it? I like worry. I like impatience. It feels so comfortable. But it shouldn't. Those those need to be bagged up and thrown away. As I said, don't give them to Goodwill. No one else should be wearing them. They're done. And every activity is to be done in obedience to the Lord Jesus and accompanied by the giving of thanks to God through Him. Give thanks, he says. Look how he closes. Give thanks to God the Father Through, which indicates cause, the mediator, that is Christ. And so, again, he highlights give thanks. S. Lewis Johnson, it's in your notes, says, Christianity is not just theology. Excuse me. It's not simply a system of ethics. It's not a do's and don'ts, but an incorporation into Christ. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you stand here in the new man. Right? Loved and holy in Christ. And that is the objective for the church. That's what Paul declares. This morning we have communion, and we're going to do this before uh, we do the sing the Mighty Fortress. And if, April, could I have you just play a little bit for us? I want to spend some time just reflecting this morning. Communion is a remembrance of what Christ has done. And if you're here this morning, you say, I I don't know this new man. I'm struggling with peace. I'm struggling with, with just who I am. Ah, then today, bend the knee. It says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Place yourself under him Allow the Lord to forgive your sin and to restore a relationship with Him. If you know Christ as your Savior, as we come to communion this morning, maybe you need to spend some time. You're in this arena. You're the new man, but you've been pulling out of the closet some clothes you shouldn't have been clo- been wearing. <laughs> and and, and it, it could be righteous anger that's spilled over into what it shouldn't be. Maybe it's worrying about who's going to be elected, maybe it's the fear of COVID, maybe it's a wayward child that you've struggled with, maybe it's something in your own personal life, whether it's the looking at things you shouldn't be looking at and dwelling on things you shouldn't be doing. We are called to be holy. And, and, and so this morning, let's, let's spend some time in prayer as we prepare our hearts for communion. come to you on this reformation sunday and reminded once again of the gospel it's by grace alone through faith alone lord the grace is that your son god almighty would stoop <laughs> leave that glorious state and come and dwell among us and then pay the price for our sin on a cross Thank you, Father. Thank you for the great sacrifice that has been given. And our salvation is not on things that we can do, for we could never earn your favor apart from what Christ has accomplished. And we are called simply to respond in faith, recognizing the sacrifice that was made by your Son and recognizing it needed to happen because of our sin. And Lord, we are grateful. We are so grateful. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's two parts to this uh, piece, and if you pull the bottom off, you'll get the the bread, which is on the bottom. Uh, Careful, you could baptize yourself as well, I know. Jesus, uh, Paul highlights the upper room when, in commemorating once again what Christ has done, he said after they had given thanks Jesus broke the bread as a symbol of his body. And he said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Grace alone through faith alone. You can tear the top off and we have the cup. Because not only did the bread symbolize the body, but the juice symbolizes the blood that was shed. No bone was broken, just as Isaiah prophesied. But he did die, and blood was spilt. And then, so in the same way, Jesus took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance Father, thank you. Indeed, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark against the evils of this world, against the pressures of life. It's through Christ that we are seen as a a new man, a new community. That is the church. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.